You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York, and this is Bloomberg Technology. We talk layoffs, Salesforce and Vimeo are the latest to announce cuts in an effort to curb spending. We break down the most vulnerable areas in tech this year. Meanwhile, Tesla rebounds after Kathy Wood buys the dip. We'll dig into the bull and the bear case for the EV maker. And generative tech, it's already the next big thing in Silicon Valley. We discuss the risks and rewards for AI-based platforms like ChatGPT. But first, SoFi Head of Investment Strategy, Liz Young, is with us to talk all about, well, really the moon music around investors at the moment. There is caution, there is worry, there is more macro headwinds to come, it feels like. Yeah, there is, but none of this is really new. I think a lot of this is left over from December, and we had a really rough month in December, especially at a time when it was supposed to be this year-end rally possibility. None of that actually came to fruition. So investors heard again from the Fed today about their determination to keep rates higher. Again, not new news. So anybody that was caught flat-footed on those minutes, I think maybe hasn't really been paying attention. So yes, they're going to keep rates higher, but here's the good news. We may know by the end of the first quarter whether or not they're done hiking. Right now, the only thing that's baked in is 25 basis points in February and another 25 in March, and then that might be the end of raising rates. And then we just have to figure out how long they pause for. To that end, have we seen enough of that starting to be baked into the overall valuations, particularly in the world of technology? We have seen some of the big tech names, Apple, for example, really rolling over. Have we baked in enough of the bad news when it comes to interest rate hikes? I think we've baked in the idea of monetary tightening. So that happened largely in 2022. Obviously, the huge drawdowns that we saw, particularly in growthy areas of the market. So we've baked in basically the Fed's hawkishness. What is not yet baked in is whether or not we're going to confirm a recession. So if we do confirm a recession, and I think we would know that by labor markets actually starting to crack, then stocks likely need to go down further. Usually, recessionary drawdowns are beyond 30%. 
percent, and the furthest we've gotten so far is 25 percent. The other thing that I don't think is quite baked in yet is when earnings revisions come down even further. Right now, they're still showing estimates for 2023 as year-over-year growth being pretty flat compared to 2022. I can't imagine that that's going to end up being the case in an environment where revenues are likely to come down, wage pressures are likely to stay sticky, and companies are going to see their bottom line and their margins get pressured. So I would expect earnings revisions to come in and show more of a contraction somewhere in the range of 5 to 10% for the year. I don't think that's all priced in yet either. Well said, and in fact, sort of agreeing with you is Mike Wilson, of course, a bit of a perma bear, the right bear it was last year in terms of some of his calls. He's over at Morgan Stanley. He had this to say when we heard the news out of Salesforce, the job cuts, and indeed whether or not big tech is a good cost cutter. Just take a listen, Melissa. The thing that concerns me about tech companies, John, is that they're not good cost cutters traditionally, right? They're, they're growth companies. They tend to want to invest into these downturns. They, ter- they want to invest, you know, aggressively through all periods of time, and they're just not good at cost cutting. And so they're going to be late on that. They're probably not going to do enough. And so it'll take longer than you think. And so the margin degradation can be more severe in those areas. Is you bracing for more cost cutting and, and indeed perhaps not that effective a cost cutting coming from big tech? Well, look, I have a lot of respect for Mike. I've been called a permabear this year and for the last 12 months because I continue to be cautious. So I align with a lot of the things that he's saying. Now, tech companies cutting costs, he's probably right that they're not used to doing that. He is right that growth companies do tend to reinvest in the business. That's the idea of a growth company. That's why you also don't find a lot of growth companies that pay out dividends or engage in stock buybacks because they're taking that capital that's available and reinvesting it into the growth of the business. Where I think any business is going to suffer in 2023 is in what he said, if they wait too long to cut costs. Because if and when the labor market starts to show signs of weakness, Mm -hmm. the consumer likely pulls back, that can happen very quickly. And if companies are only modeling out one quarter, one half of the year at a time, they might not cut costs quickly enough in order to pivot and catch sort of that revenue degradation that could happen as a result of lower consumer spending. What are some of the upside risks, Liz? The upside risks are that if we do have a recession, what we need to continue paying attention to is that it would reset the business cycle. I said that in my 2023 outlook. I'm going to keep saying that probably for the entire first half of the year. We do need to reset the business cycle. We are decidedly late cycle right now. In order to get back to early cycle, a recession would reset it. And then we can start talking about where are the opportunities? What are the opportunities that we would see in a classic coming out of a recession? Session scenario. And in that case, I would be looking at cyclicals. I'd be looking at small cap value. If the market gets down below 3,500, I'd start looking at cyclical parts of tech like semiconductors. Mm. So we can start to think about that. The other thing that's positive is that bonds are, again, a decent option and they are trading at really good valuations. But the time is now before a recession is confirmed. Are you talking treasuries here? Or what about corporate debt? Because actually, some of Bloomberg Intelligence are anticipating a whole load raft, perhaps, corporate debt to be issued by some of the big tech companies. 
Yeah, that good good idea to distinguish that. I am talking about treasuries. The time is now in treasuries, particularly two-year treasuries before a, a recession is confirmed. Corporate debt, however, the way that we look at that is typically the spreads, and you can look at the spreads over the 10-year treasury, for example. Corporate debt has not shown recessionary valuations at this point. So I would say corporate debt is kind of in that equity market camp where it's shown some valuation compression, but not enough to say that, okay, we're ready for the recession to be here or that we're, we have actually priced in a recession. So I would expect corporate debt and credit spreads, particularly in the high yield space, to blow out wider before they start to come back in again. And Liz, just for our viewer, whether they be a retail investor, whether they be more of an institutional investor, are you thinking in the next, as we've got so much uncertainty still, upside risks and indeed downside more cautious trading upon us? Is it best to be broad or is it better to be doing your fundamental analysis on individual companies? Is it more the earnings that you start to look at or is it more the macro and the data that you're going to be focused on? Well, 2020 year was absolutely a year of the macro. It was a very macro-driven environment. 2023 is likely to have some macro forces still hanging over our heads, obviously in the middle of a rate hiking cycle. But the good news about that is that I think the rate hiking cycle is beginning to mature. Mm -hmm. So some of those macro forces won't be as interesting to the market anymore. Like we've already discussed, I think a lot of that monetary tightening has really been baked in. So it is important to look at the fundamentals. It's definitely important to look at the quality of a company and their ability to generate revenue, their ability to cut costs and manage not only what they're reinvesting in the business, but what they're able to return to shareholders. Mm -hmm. And that's why dividend strategies have been so popular, because it has been this uh, returning some of that value to shareholders. Fundamentals are absolutely important. Valuations are probably the most important part of that fundamental story in 2023 smart words as we look ahead to what's going to be another turbulent year i'm sure liz young we always appreciate your time so far ahead of investment strategy stay well The way to think of this is there was this duopoly between Google and Meta. They now control less than half of the advertising market. So that their overall control is declined as other areas have grown. And so what has happened is television with connected TV streaming is is digital also and is now benefiting in the same way that digital advertising benefited Google and Meta. And so you see this growth occurring there, more customers coming into the market, they're spending more, it's diversifying the customer base away from just a thousand or two thousand advertisers to many more and so television is coming on strong as this third big scale channel that's now a true digital channel mountain ceo there mark douglas talking about the advertising industry's shift away perhaps from meta and google to those new players in the media arena and in fact some of those media names that offer streaming profit offerings are really rallying and they've been rallying hard on the day paramount up more than eight Warner Brothers up more than 8% as well. Analysts, even though, still seem to see weak ad demand, elusive streaming profitability. In fact, Macquarie was the latest to cite such concerns on the day. So what is the bull, the bear case for media companies? And which streaming offerings are likely to win out? I've got the perfect take for you. An analyst, of course, who led the charge on Netflix, upgrading it to a buy from sell in the previous week. Ken Leon is Director of Equity Research over at CFRA. And Ken, just talk to us about the immediate short-term rallies that we're seeing in some of these companies. I mentioned Warner <laughs> Brothers, Paramount. Does it take you by surprise? So it's really looking at the business and... and 
whether this is a market that's going to grow and there's going to be winners and losers. And we're coming off 2022, where the industry, movies and entertainment stocks were down 50 percent. So that serves as a, a bottom, if you will. Then it's a question for analysts to really figure out, could there be a winner in a highly competitive new disruptive area, which is video streaming and what that does to their business, including the legacy areas, whether they be broadcast or pay TV or film. It's complex. And we had a sell on Netflix most of 2022. Uh, We switched to a buy because doing some soul searching and maybe we were a little too severe on the valuation, say, Netflix shouldn't trade at a premium to a Warner Brothers Discovery, Paramount, or Disney. But we think today they, sh- they should hmm. uh, because they are really focused on winning. Okay, talk to us about the focus on winning. Talk to us about whether enough pain, enough stress, enough cutting out of the extra fat and the margin is pre- preserved over at Netflix, particularly as they've got this added addition of advertising revenue coming forward. The outlook looks very good for 2023 and 2024 uh, for this company because they're going to have new revenue streams, importantly coming from advertising, uh, going from zero, but taking some fair share away from some of the companies you mentioned, Google and Meta, but also the traditional broadcast area. There is a secular shift to streaming, and Netflix has a management that's been in place for 10 years. They've organically grown a global-based technology platform and library and shows that people want to watch. Uh, They also have a wide range of rate plans today with a new ad pay plan of $6.99, but most of the affluent viewers are paying $19.99 for higher features and high def. Add to that, well, what are the competitors doing? Each of these has changing managements. They're dealing with complex mergers. They're not sure what they want to keep or what they want to sell. And they're also trying to figure out really in terms of how are they going to win the streaming as they hold on to either legacy businesses and broadcasts or other areas like parks. That's very difficult to do. Uh, So I think Netflix has the chance to outrun its competitors and we're definitely going to see it in 2023. It's interesting that you said changing management. Of course, it's sort of revolving in some way, particularly when you think about the company that does indeed have parks, one Disney. How do you think, is Bob Iger a net positive in general for that business at the moment, particularly when it comes to the focus on streaming? So I haven't covered Disney or these companies for 10 years, but you know my observation is Bob Iger is coming back to do the job he was unfulfilled. He made an enormous acquisition back 2019. Disney has high debt. They're trying to generate higher cash flow and earnings in return to shareholders. Uh, they don't pay a dividend. They don't buy back stock. But this is Disney. Uh, the stock's cheap, trading below 90. Uh, so we have a view that uh, Iger probably uh, will do things that will be positive for shareholders. Well, we're not sure what it is. They have a put call with Comcast for Hulu. That's a big number. They have to decide from activists like Loeb what to do with ABC or ESPN. Uh, And it's complex. And at the end of the day, the heart of this company is not video streaming, Disney Plus. Uh, And it's going to be challenging compared 
you know, to Netflix, which is organically 100% focused on video streaming. And that's where viewers are going. Uh, advertisers are following a little bit slower, uh, but they're switching over to the streaming market. Uh, and that's really going to benefit the stronger players. Well, it was another strong day for Netflix trading as well on the day of almost 5%. Ken Leon, it's great to catch up with you. Stay well, Director of Equity Research over at CFRA with that well, double raise for Netflix last week to a buy. Meanwhile, another story we continue to watch, and we stick on kind of the focus on advertising because Facebook's parent, Meta Platforms, has been fined $440 million by the European Union's main privacy watchdog. The penalty has to do with the way users' data is used for personalized ads on Facebook and Instagram. Meta has three months to ensure the processing of such information complies with EU rules. Coming up, well, shares of Salesforce, they rose after a pretty painful announcement, and that's about cutting staff by about 10%. More on the company's restructuring plans. That's next. And as we head to break, let's take a little look at Apple. Shares losing shine after an ugly month. The stock fell 12% in December, taking the company's market value below that of $2 trillion. Now, investors are concerned that matters could get worse because, of course, delays in iPhone production. That's, of course, to do with China's COVID and weakening demand as the economy slows down. From New York, this is Greenberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. And look, they keep on coming. Layoffs in the tech industry. This time Salesforce announcing it will cut about 10% of its workforce and indeed reduce real estate holdings. Joining us now is Bloomberg tech reporter Brody Ford, who helped analyze what was put out as a statement by the company. And do we have any hints of where or, or, or you know, geographies or anything around these sorts of cuts? It appears to be very broad-based at this time. I've spoken to people from legal to philanthropy to sales, recruiting. I think when we see a big layoff like this, we assume 
oh, you cut all the recruiters, all the salespeople, but there, there are some engineers in there too. It appears pretty broad. Um, everybody knows Salesforce is one of the biggest employers in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. If it is an equal layoff across their geographies, that would mean about a thousand people cut from San Francisco at a time when obviously their downtown is struggling. Mm -hmm. And to that end, do we therefore worry about San Francisco and the real estate, therefore, that they have there, if they're going to be sort of coming to an end on some of their leases? Well, what's funny about this is that they're talking about they're cutting leases, but at the same time they're saying we're forcing some people back to the office, right? Mm. Salesforce has said, you know, a year or two ago, Benioff was out saying we're never going back, but uh, there are some salespeople being forced back to the office. Management is increasingly focused on productivity and these kinds of measures. So. You know, are they cutting some real estate? Yeah, but the tower is not going anywhere. <laughs> Even if it was sinking at one point or other. Brody, yeah. <laughs> uh, is this it in terms of announcements, do you think? And more to the point, how does it dent the culture or actually take away some of that anxiety? Because there was tumult. We're yeah. reporting with you almost on a daily basis last year about changes at the top of this business, and now it's going to be filtering down. I would say almost no one is surprised that there was a layoff. I mean, everybody I spoke to said that there was that kind of fear in the air. Um, the scale of it is higher than some expected. I think I was hearing the number around 5,000 a little more often. It was 8,000, so it was large. And of course, no one wants to do rolling layoffs. I don't think management is planning to do another big layoff tomorrow, but hey, it's a worsening macro. They're doing this yeah. because they're seeing slowing growth and they need better profits. So, I mean, I don't think we can confidently say that this is it. I mean. And our viewers would agree. We yeah. took to Twitter asking really whether the worst is behind us for tech layoffs. And no, 53, let's call it 54%, I think still there's more to come. You cover a broad range of companies. Is it those most focused on selling into corporate businesses? Mm -hmm. We were just hearing about, of course, Microsoft, the downgrade from UBS today, the worries about Azure. Yep. Are they sort of the weak parts of the tech space right now? Well, what's funny is for a while it was if you were enterprise, you were good. It was the consumer-facing yeah. market. That's the one that was in danger. But as those consumer businesses have gotten more in trouble, the people who sell those companies' software are seeing it too. So it's kind of trickling up now to those places that were a little safer, your sales forces, your Microsoft. So um, as long as the picture is worsening in terms of consumer demand, I think it still will hit the enterprise players. Brody, thank you for bringing you. us all of the analysis on this news. Brody Ford. And of course, Salesforce isn't the only company out with layoff news. Even on the day, on Wednesday, Vimeo announced it will cut 11% of its global full-time workforce. Also, to focus on the company's sustainable, profitable growth, shares of the video software company rose about to see 5% on the news. I use it every day. It makes driving safer, less stressful, uh, and, and I'm less tired after driving. It's a great product. And by the way, it improved yesterday while it was sitting in my driveway. The car I own today is better than the car I owned yesterday. It's the pragmatic case. I mean, like, let's be honest. This is a, a world-class um, product that people love and that makes them safer and gets them to and from places faster and easier. Uh, and I don't expect that that, that hasn't changed. Uh, and so we expect it to continue.
Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And that, of course, was our chief futurist, Brett Winton, who Tuesday was talking about the bull case. He called it the pragmatic case, the bull case of Tesla, which has been under pressure after announcing a delivery miss. Another bull is Brett's boss, Kathy Wood, who has bought the dip, no doubt helping the bounce back on Wednesday. We want to dig into Tesla a little bit more about, well, really, where this price is going, where the fundamentals are going. With Morningstar equity strategist, Seth Goldstein. Seth, great to catch up with you. And look, you've got to buy on this stock and like many others you see the price basically doubling to about 231 is where the general price target is for this year in the next 12 months for Tesla and you have about 220. Can you talk us through the reasoning why you think this is a buy the dip moment? Yeah so so while Tesla is shifting into a slower growth mode the growth is still there and the stock is at a reasonable price right now. You know a lot of the a lot of the ancillary businesses like full self driving and essentially growth of the insurance are being heavily discounted as well as future cost savings that management can still implement as it ramps up its factories and as it achieves its 2020 uh, battery day goals that will still drive margins higher so I expect proper growth in excess of revenue growth even if revenue growth is more in the high teens over the next 10 years instead of management's 50% target. So we see a lot of upside in the stock at current prices. Is it then a story of a show-me stock? The way, it, what's interesting is, yes, they did miss their targets, their own internal targets to deliver more than 50% growth in terms of deliveries last quarter, and they missed it. They got in, but 40% is still strong. Do we need to have more clarity, more real sort of basic analysis and future guidance coming from Tesla so we can set our sights a little bit more realistically. Yeah, I, I think that certainly would help. Um, management just are saying that we expect to grow 50% a year in deliveries over a multi-year period does not really help with year-to-year -year guidance, especially as Tesla's now big enough to start seeing a demand impact from an economic slowdown. Mm. You know, now that, they've, now that they're at 1.3 million vehicles annually, they're going to start to see some consumers who may want to hold off on that big ticket item and then wait till the next year while we're in a slowdown. So, you know, I think management guidance and the more the more sort of confidence they can give us around specific targets and numbers from a year-to-year -year basis would certainly help the stock because I think investors right now are searching for what is the right growth rate and with a high growth stock like Tesla even small changes in a growth rate assumption can materially change your valuation for the stock. Yeah, I mean, talk to us about the incentives that we'll be having to be dangled in front of a U.S. buyer. Is that a worry? Is that a shining a light on the fact that the price point is going to have to change? We do think there's going to be some small price cuts as Tesla is going to want to make sure that as many of its vehicles as possible, specifically some Model 3s and Model Ys, will ultimately qualify for the Inflation Reduction Act tax credit. And heading into an economic slowdown, I think that's going to be a way Tesla can generate strong demand growth. So we are modeling some price decreases for that uh, platform next year, in, in this year, to, to help generate uh, demand growth. And then that's going to help Tesla grow to what we're forecasting is a little over 1.6 million deliveries in 2023. So with all the daily sort of tussles that you get, whether it's on social media or whether it's on, on air like this, whether it's about the worries of whether 40% is still a pretty good growth rate, whether or not we should be looking at deliveries rather than demand. From your perspective, what is the main thing that we should focus our eyes on now when it comes to Tesla? Is it China? Is it deliveries? Is it demand? Which side should we be looking at? I think there's two key things that we should continue to focus on. One is 
as we go into 2023, what will the growth rate be? You know, I still expect decent double-digit growth. Um, I'm forecasting 24% growth next year in deliveries. And then two, what do the profit metrics look like? If you remember back in uh, the first quarter of last year, Tesla achieved nearly a 30% growth margin in the automotive segment. And that was before the opening of the Berlin and Austin factories. As production ramps up in those factories, I do expect the gross profit margins will improve sequentially. And so if Tesla can continue to show profit improvement, I think that helps give confidence uh, that, that the stock can still work and still be a growth stock. Morningstar's Seth Goldstein, thank you as ever, talking about the growth stock that is Tesla. Let's look at, well, look at the competitive side of it all, because electric vehicles aren't just wholly a Tesla. There's so much competition, and front and center is going to be on display at the CES convention in Las Vegas. Bloomberg's Keith Norton reported on this on Tuesday and joins us now. And Keith, you know, we're used to basically car companies being the main proponents and main areas of display at technology companies has been the case for the last few years. What is it going to be like at CES this year? Are we going to have a little bit more sort of uh, reasonable growth stories for these sorts of companies? Yes, CES is getting real, Caroline. Uh, <laughs> what we're seeing this year is displays of not fanciful things, you know, flying robo-taxis. We're seeing, you know, electric vehicles that are either on the road today or they're about to be on the road because everybody's trying to catch Tesla, right? And so this year at CES, it's all about pragmatism and profitability, <laughs> not so much about potential and profits that may come someday or not at all. People want to know, you know, what can you show me that will deliver a return on investment now. Oh boy, Pro pragmatism and profitability, I think, is basically the, the turn of phrase for every single company for the rest of 2023, whether it's a car company or not. But talk to us about, therefore, the big intros. What are we going to be seeing unveiled at this year? So the bit, one of the big EV unveilings will be Stellantis, the company that makes Jeep and Ram pickup trucks. They're going to show a concept of an electric Ram pickup truck. This will be the, the one that will take on Ford's F-150 Lightning electric. They'll take on the new Rivian R1T and Tesla's Cybertruck when that eventually comes out. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the big intros. But we'll also see uh, another electric pickup truck, um, the Endurance from Lordstown Motors. Uh, we'll see some digital digital concepts from, from BMW and Mercedes. Um, but all of these things will be things that consumers can get their hands on soon. They're not just some research project in a lab. Well, talking of research products in a lab, ones that actually have been more evidently on the road has been self-driving. And we know the Waymo's of this world and, and indeed Tesla have been trying very hard in this space. Are we going to get anything in this particular focus point? Yeah, it, again, pragmatism uh, will rule the day. So what we have now, Caroline, is instead of sort of the free-range robo-taxis that will take us anywhere, we're going to see a self-driving tractor from John Deere. <laughs> so that is the sort of thing that autonomy is, is focused on. It's these use cases that are needed today and that will generate a return now. It doesn't mean that Waymo isn't still out there or, or Cruise, but the thing is, is that it, the inflection point was Argo, the uh, the self-driving unit mm. of Ford and VW going down. That's that's made this CES far more sober. People are really looking at, you know, how can I make a profit today, not tomorrow? Sober, pragmatic, 
I'm not sure either of those things are going to be summing up the enthusiasm we'll get from Ed Ludlow on the ground in Las Vegas. But Keith, you set us up wonderfully for tomorrow. Keith Norton, we thank you. And do not forget, Thursday, Friday, full of energy is going to be Bloomberg Technology, live from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. We're going to be chatting with so many leaders. Delta CEO Ed Bastian, who's a key speaker there. CISA Director Jen Easterly, Siemens US CEO Barbara Hampton, and Qualcomm CEO Cristiano Amon. You do not want to miss it. Meanwhile, coming up in the here and the now, the generative AI is all abuzz in Silicon Valley. So what are the risks? What are the actual rewards and the best strategy to invest? We're going to have NFX general partner James Courier here. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So the U.S. government has seized, or is in the process of seizing, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Robin Hood shares. It's all part of the fraud case against Sam Bankman-Fried. Now, the FTX founder bought a 7% stake in Robin Hood last year. The shares, now worth more than $460 million, have been claimed by various creditors of FTX who filed court cases to try and control them. This is all part of the government's fraud case against Bankman-Fried and other top FTX officials. Meanwhile, well, maybe it was crypto was a hot thing in 2022. Now, of course, the hot thing is AI. And we've all been playing with it, talking about it. Now, Microsoft is reportedly upgrading its search engine with it. The generative AI, of course, ChatGPT, DALI, other AI tools have got us all pondering kind of the implications, the use cases as we create text, we create images, videos, software, code, music, 3D models. My next guest is thinking on this more than most and been investing in the space more than most. NFX general partner James Currier is here to explain, well, the fact that back in October, before we all sort of got completely engrossed in it in various Twitter trends, you said that the biggest change to the internet is already upon us and you said it was AI in the applications. Just talk us through your thinking. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Um, you know, as, as you know, NFX is one of the largest seed funds in the world and uh, our job is to be sort of on the front edge, and I would say this is on the front edge. We started investing about two years ago. It really took off, as you said, about three months ago. So we're really early in this process. We're, we're heavy into it because we do think that it's going to affect every industry. 
so there's going to be a number of unicorns and decacorns built over the next four or five years in this area. And so we've been uh, investing heavily in it. Mm. And um, we, uh, yeah, so James, we've, we've published parts the, of it. Which are yeah. the most fruitful at the moment? Because, I mean, I can see copy editors and many people being somewhat concerned about their future job descriptions. But which are the most practical use cases right now that you've seen already the millions that flow into companies that are building in that space? Right, right. So on NFX.com, we have published the largest generative tech and generative AI market map out there. There's about 477 companies today, and it's growing every day. Uh, about 32% of the $13 billion that's already been invested in those companies has gone into uh, general AI, into general AI models that are now powering it. We think of this like we would think of fiber optics in the late 90s that laid the groundwork for the internet. And uh, going forward, we think that there's going to be more invested in the upper layers of that stack. And so um, we've, we think there are going to be three big winners. <clears throat> the first is going to be the companies that move very fast to build SaaS software to do things people would expect, like copywriting mm. or video editing. And we're seeing that already with companies like Jasper, who just raised $125 million to do marketing and copywriting. Uh, the second group is going to be companies that use generative AI at the core of things like marketplaces and payment structures, uh, but not, but aren't exactly delivering the AI to the customer. They're actually building it in to create a more competitive business okay. to compete market. And then the third one is going to be the visionaries who do businesses that we haven't even thought of yet. Mm. And that's typically the way these things roll out. How do you seek out the visionaries to that end, James? I mean, I know what's interesting over at NFX, if you've got the FAST program, where basically you take a whole load of generative technology companies, the founders there, you get them to pitch, and within a very swift turnaround, you decide whether they're a business model that you want to be funding. Is that the way to sort of find out where is it the cutting edge that maybe people haven't thought about the practical application? <clears throat> That's right. We, we've interviewed over 100 generative AI companies over the last two months, and we're getting a real good sense of where the things are moving and where things are, are getting a little bit stuck. Um, the, the thinking of the founders yet hasn't moved past sort of a lot of the obvious ideas. So in the market map, you've got 100 companies doing text-based stuff like Jasper and Copy AI. Um, they're all doing very, something very similar. They've got to take that next leap. And what we're doing in these conversations is to figure out who's got the ability to take that leap to the next level for what's going to be successful next summer and the end of 2023. Because what we're seeing now is sort of copycats of things that were successful a year, a year and a half ago. James, what's interesting about this FAST program is, well, the fact that it's FAST, the pace in which you're able to decide that you want to cut a check. I'm interested in, as we've learned some of the repercussions of all the money in the world and perhaps not some of the safety parts in place, the, the governance that we'd like to see at certain businesses. I mean, we were just talking about FTX. How are you ensuring that you're getting those sorts of rules of the road in place when you write that sort of a company money? Yeah, so the FAST program writes million, a million and a half and $2 million checks to early stage startups with two people to 10 people. So we're not putting a ton of money into these companies, so we're not giving them so much that they can start behaving badly. The second thing is that we actually sit down with them and talk with them about how to publish and follow on their values and the things they're going to adhere to. Because look, generative AI, like the internet itself, uh, can be used for good or for ill. And whether it's you know racist or sexist comments or whether it's going to be... Um, 
you know, using it to generate images that just are unseemly. You've got to have some rules of the road that you publish, you commit to your community, and then you want to behave along those lines. And we help the founders put those in place. I mean, yeah, boy, we just think of how Microsoft was slightly bitten by that AI generative function and the way in which, unfortunately, humanity used it to start splurging, uh, I mean, hate speech, basically. I'm interested, James, therefore, is, is there any... Does this need to come from a federal level? Does this need to come from a international organization level to think about how we put the rules in place that we are building purposeful AI that indeed is a net positive, never in any way a negative contribution? Yeah, we think so. We think that it starts out with our community. Look, we want the generative AI community, the generative tech community to do a lot better job than the social networking groups did at laying out the principles and the values that they need to adhere to. Uh, and that's always the first step, because as we explore these technologies, we who are building the technologies understand their strengths and weaknesses the best. But long term, we do need to have federal and international uh, guidelines that we can all adhere to. And hopefully we're going to get that in crypto uh, pretty soon, because we can see what the results of not having it is. Very briefly, James, when you're looking at all these different companies, where are they being built? Uh, we're seeing a lot of them in Europe, a lot of them in Israel, uh, but the most of them are being built here in the U.S. Um, on top of the great efforts that Google and OpenAI and others have done over the years uh, to, to build up a foundation of machine learning and artificial intelligence people. We've got a lot of universities here mm -hmm. who are putting out a lot of PhDs and masters in this area, and those people like to stay here in the U.S., and so we've got a lot of great teams going after this whole area, as we have for the last five or six years. It's just the processing power and the cost has come down so much in the last 24 months that it really exploded in the last three months. James, it's been great speaking with you. Thanks for taking us through what seemed to be pretty much a call ahead of the curve. NFX general partner James Currier there. Time now for going viral. And you've seen it trending on a, well, countless hashtags. Hashtag House of Representatives. Hashtag Kevin McCarthy. Hashtag C-SPAN even. Wednesday, GOP leader Kevin McCarthy failed for the sixth time to rally House Republicans behind his bid for Speaker. And the House is at a standstill, basically, until the election of the Speaker, and which means business will not be conducted until it is settled. But current chaos aside, what can McCarthy needing the House look like for technology in general? Well, McCarthy is the man leading the GOP's battle against big tech. His agenda looks to provide greater privacy and data security protections. It's going to equip parents, he says, with more tools to keep their kids safe online and aims to stop companies from putting politics ahead of people, so they say. A nod, of course, to Republican concerns about political censorship, which we have seen big changes on already, at least over at Twitter. Remember, since the Musk takeover, former President Donald Trump has been reinstated on the platform and just yesterday the company announced an easing of its political ads ban. And while McCarthy's agenda doesn't specifically talk to issues like antitrust, it's of course going to be something Silicon Valley will keep an eye on. Now, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Stay tuned for all those votes still to come. I'm sure there's going to be more rounds of it coming from Washington. But with tomorrow, all eyes turn to Las Vegas. They turn to one Ed Ludlow, who's going to be joining us again in conversation, of course, with CrowdStrike CEO George Kurtz, live in the hour on his 2023 cybersecurity outlook. You do not want to miss it. Plus, don't forget to check out our very own podcast. You can find it on the terminal. You can find it online on Apple, Spotify, and iHeart. And plenty more in terms of these markets still to come after Wednesday's rally. From New York, 
This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.